Welcome to season two of the Front End Nerdery podcast, a podcast about front end development and design. I'm your host, Todd Libby. My guest today is senior accessibility designer, Anna E. Cook. You may know Anna from Twitter and tweets about accessibility and design, her terrific talks at conferences you may have attended virtually, and her penchant for ketchup. Uh, Anna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as Todd mentioned, I'm a senior accessibility designer. Uh, I started that role officially in May of 2021, which is, uh, what, eight or nine months ago now. Uh, And I, before that, was a designer who chose to specialize in accessibility Uh, and advocate for accessibility practices in design orgs and tech orgs alike. Um, So I've been doing that for a while now. Um, I'm a graduate student at the University of Colorado Boulder, focusing on specifically inclusive design, as well as really specializing in uh, accessibility and design. No surprises there. Uh, And I guess, you know, uh, right now I'm working on a book uh, on accessibility and design. Uh, I stay on brand, obviously, but uh, uh, besides that, you know, in my free time, I, you know, play video games. I'm really into game accessibility, too. I've got two cats, and uh, usually I'm hiking around Boulder and Colorado a little bit. How did you get started in your web development design journey? When I really started out, I was doing things like posting on MySpace, right? And then, uh, you know, I used to use this thing called Gaia Online, which I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, (laughs) I used to, you know, like I, I write my little terrible markup and in my posts and I, you know, make my pages look as emo as possible. And, you know, I was back then, um, I would use things like uh, InDesign on the school paper. I was really familiar with Photoshop to do all the things I was doing back then, which were, you know, inexplicably terrible designs, but still designs. Uh, and so I was really lucky. Um, my school, my high school offered a design course and I didn't realize that I was interested in design until I took that course and that kind of set me on this path. And that's been, I started that, you know, I started focusing on this really when I was 17. I got my first designer job when I was um, 20. And that's going to be about 10 years in a few months. Um, and so it, it's something that I really enjoy because it's this really cool intersection between um or at least at the time I thought of it as an intersection between art and technology. And um, and now I've come to see of it as more of like a possibility, an equalizer of a place that can provide equity if we choose to let it do so. Okay, great. I remember Gaia Online. I didn't have an experience with that, but I had several friends that uh, had something to do with that. MySpace was a thing. Yeah, I remember putting up very bad MySpace pages back in <laughs> back in the day as well. So from there, um, what are you finding today 
as um, you know, you, in your everyday work, accessibility-wise, um, that you may come across that needs to be a, a, a improved upon. Oh goodness, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, I mean, as a designer, my perspective is going to be a little bit different. Um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I started out in, as just a designer, and then I chose this specialty, and uh, and so that's my perspective. You know, in the organization I'm in, I help folks kind of make their work more accessible. I train them up. We figure out ways we can like look at our design work and make sure that we're actually considering accessibility um, and how that might be integrated in design. And I think you know. Uh, I knew this going into every role, um, especially early on when I was learning about design and accessibility, but designers are generally quite underprepared to discuss accessibility. And I think that's a huge problem because so many decisions are being made in our product management and design teams that can't be undone by development. They can't be undone by QA. And so my, you know, my biggest sticking point right now is to get our community as designers on a, a level playing field because education-wise, we didn't get that. Um, and I know that that there's been gaps in front-end education too, but it's it's just I think accessibility in design is is way far behind. Um, we don't use semantic, you know, we don't think about semantic code and how that can work in our design. We are constantly reinventing the wheel um, with things that we could use semantic code for. Um, we're not thinking through the types of users that are, you know, and I'm going on, forgive me, but we're not thinking through users who have disabilities. We're not thinking through what a screen reader experience is like, what a keyboard only experience is like. And many of us don't even know what that means right now. So I think you know, my biggest sticking point, again, is getting designers trained on the basics and then finding ways to really enhance experiences across the board. Yeah, that's... Um, I, so this brings me... What you said brings me back to uh, when I first started out a long time ago. Um, <laughs> when I was doing design work and... I think back to, uh, you know, how, how much did I put out there that was inaccessible or, you know, and hindsight's 2020. And I, and I remember that now because, you know, that going forward for me anyways, that helps me remember, Oh, you remember that time, make sure not to repeat that. The biggest thing with me lately is color contrast. So that's, you know, that's the big thing. So, well, so that's the hot topic right now. That certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as far as, you know, us, everybody as a community, do you think that we're, and I, and I don't want to, you know, be all doom and gloom about it, but are we failing as far as design and accessibility goes, or are we on the verge of, you know, failing, you know, that we don't have the education piece, you know, and that's, that's the big thing with me is I, I've never seen the the education piece as far as boot camps don't provide education, you know, university doesn't, provide education as far as I I've seen I haven't seen that 
but uh, you know, how, how is that in, in your opinion? Yeah, I think, well, a couple of things to kind of touch on here. Um, are we failing? I would say compared to designers of the past, there's a lot of ways that we're doing things better. Uh, and then there's also a lot of ways we're not really thinking about it. Like, you know, the whole Bitcoin NFT space, I know there's just going to be about 10,000 different things that are problematic there. Um, and that's not even just because of the nature of them being crypto and um, thing in blockchain, but because, you know, spaces like that tend to be a breeding ground for uh, inaccessible and inequitable design decisions. Um, and that's not, again, hope the crypto fan club doesn't come at me for that. I'm just saying that that's a common trend. Right. Um, so are we failing? I think, you know, I'd like to say I'm optimistic, but I, I also know when you're, <laughs> when you're doing this work and I'm sure you understand this very well too, sometimes it can be, it can feel like you're just looking at a tidal wave of things that need to be addressed. And so I am optimistic. Um, I know there's a lot of people who want this, who want to be better at accessibility in their practice, um, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Um, in terms of accessibility education for designers, uh, I, did a, I did a talk, and I'm doing a talk on this actually for ActsCon in a few months, um, why we need more accessibility designers. And in the talk, uh, I talk, <laughs> I talk, and I'm talking a lot now, but uh, I talk about how design education has pr pretty big gaps in terms of accessibility. And as you touched on, right, with boot camps and higher education, um, in a survey that I pulled, and I am happy to send the reference here, I believe it was around 50% of higher education institutions identified teaching accessibility in their HCI, like human computing interaction programs. But I always, like when I looked at that information, I was like, what does that mean though? Like when you say you teach accessibility, are you just saying accessibility is important like so many of us do and leaving you know the details out or are you actually building a robust curriculum with accessibility baked in? So those are the questions I kind of have. So on that, do you think that accessibility is, and I have my own <laughs> opinion on this, uh, do you think accessibility is undervalued? It's just a huge social issue, and it digs in so much deeper than digital accessibility. You know, it's, oh goodness, it's, we always assume, right, that accessibility is an edge case. We assume that, and we refer to people as edge cases, but people are not edge cases. And particularly when it comes to disability, when 26% of the American population has a disability, according to the CDC, um, as of 2019, that's even really before COVID, you know, affected us. And when we look at things like that, that's one in four people. It's not, people are not edge cases. And even if they could be, in this case, they would not be. And so if accessibility is designed to make sure that experiences are working for disabled people and with disabled people, then I think it's hugely undervalued in so many circumstances, not even just in our context, like educational institutions, work environments, things like that. It's, it's pretty systemic. I, I have the same feeling as, you know, as you do. 
that, you know, when we look on Twitter and we see an image that doesn't have alt text (laughs) (laughs) or, (laughs) or, you know, the latest example for me was, um, it was an, an image on Instagram that had a gray background, but it had a lighter gray, the font on it that it ended up being and of course me i instantly go to the color contrast checker it had a one 1.35 to 1 ratio it's it's frustrating and i and i look at this and i say well they don't they don't value accessibility they don't you know i guess because lately i've been thinking a lot more of the people that we um you know, either advocate for who we create things for, um, you know, we've seen developers that don't take into consideration the users and they're designing or developing for themselves. Oh, it works on my machine. It's that kind of thing. So that, you know, that's, that's why I asked. So with that being said, how do we, as you know, you and I and, and everybody else that advocates, how do we, if people are listening that, that want to know or don't know, um, how do we start advocating uh, in a proactive kind of manner for that, for accessibility? I think, you know, everybody has different approaches for this. And you know, I think that the beauty of the accessibility community is that we see different people have those different approaches and that different approaches work better in different contexts. So, but, you know, like, uh, like certain organizations, they'll bring in folks who have disabilities to do testing and have their product teams see, you know, or, or watch, you know, what is happening with those users so that they can understand just how deeply impactful those barriers can be. And, you know, that firsthand interaction, I think, is one of the core parts of advocacy, advocacy, excuse me. But then, like, well, how do you get to the point where you can actually get somebody in the room, right, to have those conversations and do testing? Because so many organizations are struggling with user testing as it is. And so I think, you know, the way... And I, I won't say that I've had a perfect approach because I can't say any approach is perfect. Yeah. Um, but I try to emphasize being persistent and constant and yes, as kind as possible, uh, though it can, you know, it can be hard um, because especially if you have disabilities and the, you know, the disabilities you have are being affected by these contexts, it can be difficult to hear somebody be like, well, we don't have users like this when you're like, I am right here. Thank you very much. But yeah, you know, I, the constant reminders, right? Going, okay, did we check this? Did we check this? Did we do this? And starting to really show them that it can be baked in and that there are ways to work through these problems the way that we work through all design problems. That's what I've seen work best for me is just to be, as I heard Soren Lambie, I think that's their full name, Soren Lambie put it, I'm the Jiminy Cricket of accessibility. You know, you, you're just there and you remind them and you be patient and you be kind because yeah. there's going to be endless conversations like that. 
Yeah. So I want to swing around here to um, you have, and you mentioned it earlier, a conference talk coming up at AxCon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so the talk is called Why We Need More Accessibility Designers. And um, and I think, you know, it's something <laughs> I put together in part because I kept getting these requests, you know, people being like, we need somebody like you and we need more people on our team that can do this. Can you show us who else is able to do this or can you do this work for us? And as I, you know, as you probably gathered at the beginning, I, I'm pretty busy as it is. And so um, the answer for me is like, I can't, I can't help you. I'm sorry. And um, the problem is that, you know, I want these organizations to have accessibility designers, but designers aren't trained up and they're not ready. And so we need people to, we need designers to really understand that there are places that are going to want them to do this work, whether it be by official title, like I'm doing now, or in the capacity of their work as a designer in general. And so I really want to have my community understand as designers, you know, what this can look like and how this can be integrated in our practice so that individuals and organizations can start creating roles like mine and training people to do the work I do. Um, not that I don't like being super special and, you know, having that <laughs> that uh, work come my way, but it, it needs to be more than just a small collective of people. Um, it needs to be a lot of designers. And um, so in that talk, I talk about education and the gaps. I talk about um, what happens in our work and how we can make it more accessible and what an accessibility designer does. And, um, you know, I think the thing I'll quote here in regards to accessibility designers is something Matt May says, we need a lot of people who know a bit about it, accessibility, about accessibility and a few people who know a lot about accessibility. Did I say that right? I think I did. Basically, we need specialists in these roles. We need people to be able to rise to the occasion. How do we get more people to become accessibility designers? My hope is that we will start creating more dedicated training programs, not just institutions, but you know, by people who are leading in the accessibility industry right now um, to help designers understand how to integrate this into our practice. I think that is a starting point where it will help a lot of folks because right now, a lot of accessibility, digital accessibility education is really front end and QA focused. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that the designers are a little bit confused and collectively it's kind of like, we have to kind of dig through things to figure out what exactly applies. So I think as a community, um, the accessibility, the existing accessibility community um, will hopefully be able to come together and provide some of those resources, more of those resources, um, so that designers aren't left kind of trying to figure it out like I felt like I had to kind of figure it out. Um, so that's, I think that's what I wanted, that's what I would say. Uh, and then hopefully organizations actually create these jobs and create, you know, the resources to train folks up. Yeah. Yep. Definitely agree with you there. So I, I read a, uh, you know, I went on DQ's uh, website and checked out the schedule for AxCon. And I think is where I read uh, 
part of why I have this next question, uh, which is why do accessibility issues fall back on designers and QA people? Now, I know the answer to that because I actually am going through an audit right now where I am actually, you know, handing it back to a QA person. Uh, but I'm not the designer, of course. Um, I'm the engineer on this. I have been dealing with designers on, uh, for instance, um, looking over a Figma design, for instance, and, you know, noticing, okay, this needs to change. This color contrast needs to be, you know, more than what you have. So why do accessibility issues fall back on designers and QA people? Well, I mean, there are some things that developers can adjust and fix with code, but there are plenty of things that they cannot fix with code. And we can't tack on ARIA labels to bad copy. You know, we can't, we can't, I mean, we can, but we, you know, how many times are we going to do that until we realize we can just make the label itself on the input clear? There are many accessibility issues that de developers just can't fix without coming back to designers and saying, hey, like, can we adjust this? Because otherwise they're gonna push it to QA and then designers are gonna be like, this isn't, isn't what I gave you. Right. And so then you'll end up with this constant back and forth and who's, who's supposed to be making the decision here? Well, the designers should have made that decision and they should have talked with the developer about it and it shouldn't have been coming up in QA. It should have been happening in the design official design phase. And, you know, there's more than things than like copy. There's of course, color contrast. There's things like, um, why am I blinking? Uh, header structure. There's things like uh, interaction design concepts, right? What happens on focus? What's the, uh, what's the focus flow? What's the reading order? All of those things, they do live in design, whether we, we as a community have acknowledged it or not. Yeah, definitely. So how can we improve in having designers? Well, I'll go say, I'll just say with designers, how can we improve on getting designers to understand accessibility more? There's a lot that needs to happen, but I think some of the first things we should be doing is emphasizing accessibility in our design thinking. I think, you know, designers are really prepared to talk about color contrast. It's so much so that they're ready to use the next hottest tool already. But um, but there's so much more to the work that we do than color contrast. And a lot of those considerations live in our design thinking as it is. So, you know, how are we thinking through these problems? What are the structures and the semantics that we're putting together? And I mean semantics like um, taxonomy and structure and um, flow. What are the things we're thinking through there? And how are those things supposed to be, you know, accessible? And those aren't always the easy questions to answer, but they're, they're design. That's, that's design in essence. It's like that for all users. It's not like, accessibility introduces something more complex than what is already existing in design because we deal with wicked problems every day. And so I think the biggest thing is to really start getting designers to understand that our users can look many different ways. They can be many different types of people and that people, 
you know, we're not averages. We're, we are, none of us are an average body. None of us are an average mind. We are all unique and varied because we are people and that is our nature. And that's not even some feel good thing. It's, you know, it's actually studied. Bodies are varied. We, there's a whole U.S. Air Force study on this as well that I could talk about for 7,000 more hours. Um, that my dad, he really liked that story. He was like, oh, wow. And my, I told my grandpa about it because he used to be a pilot. But anyway, that was over the holidays. They really enjoyed those ones. But um, I want designers, I think the biggest thing is to really change their way of thinking about users and to think about solving for one, a core user who has a disability and extending to many through that process as Microsoft outlines in their guidelines and really thinking through those people, their needs with them, not just for them, if that makes sense. I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. That uh, Great stuff here. So the art and it's kind of, it's, it's not, I'm not pitching uh, anything here, but the article I wrote on Smashing Magazine, you had said something that reminded me of that when I wrote, we need to have an accessibility champion in every department in the organization, which would help with the education. And, and this was the, the piece that I was trying to remember <laughs> um, was the education through, you know, one person has that knowledge in each department, in the design department, in the marketing department, even in QA, you know, development, et cetera. And if we have that, you know, we have those people get together and then that spreads, I think that's one way to have cohesiveness through an organization. And how important do you think it is and, you know, feel free to add anything on top of that. How important do you think it is to have those people in those departments or, you know, in the organizations? Well, I totally agree with that. And I like that article, by the way. I do share it with people. Thank you. Um, the, I think if we don't have people in those roles, a couple of things are going to happen, right? If we only have a couple of accessibility advocates and they're just overseeing the entire organization, um, what can happen is one, you know, people, accessibility subject matter experts will know things, but they can't possibly know everything about every practice. I just, it's not a, I mean, I might be biased here, but I don't think it's a fair expectation to have of anybody. And so Having, you know, an accessibility expert who's in design, who's in uh, front end, who is in QA, who's, you know, in our project management, product management side, excuse me, um, at least having that as a starting point will make sure that we have people who are able to answer questions that are really relevant to the specific audience they're working with, rather than having somebody who is broadly speaking, able to answer some questions, but isn't always able to understand the context of those questions. And then uh, of course, if you only have a couple in the entire organization, the first thing that's going to happen is your team's going to get burnt out and they will struggle. Um, it's it's hard, you know, the work we do, as I'm sure you know, it can be really a lot, especially if you're doing it throughout an entire organization. And so you wouldn't ask, you know, 
you wouldn't ask two designers to, to design an entire five product organization, customer service organization or something like that. You would have designers embedded in teams so that they could actually focus on those subjects. So the the long story short before I go on is that I totally agree. And even like, you know, as a part of the work I do, I, I'm hoping to create, you know, more of a guild structure so that designers within different product teams can come and work together. And the same should happen, you know, with development and QA so that we can come together, notice the trends and acknowledge them collectively instead of in segments. Yeah, yeah totally agree on that. When I was reading the form I had, you fill out uh, something caught my eye. And I think I had read this before somewhere, maybe not, but I am very interested in the accessibility for designers book that was mentioned. So what can you tell us about that? Well, it's still early. Um, I've written, I have eight, nine, 10 chapters out that are not out, not ready to read, but they're ready to be edited. And the hope is that it's going to be released in September of this year. Oh my goodness. I have to get to work. <laughs> uh, but in this book, I hope to address some of those design thinking challenges and then give designers the ability to start reframing the way they look at their practice and then using that in their workflows. And so that's, you know, that's what we're looking at for the book. I do have, um, you know, I can't, I'm not, I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about in terms of who's editing it, but I have some really exciting editors. I have a co-author um, who I'm super jazzed about as well. And um, there's a lot of work to be done still, but, you know, I think one thing I talk about in this book that I'm really interested in discussing more, uh, and I'm excited to see what people think, but it's a concept, you know, designers call, and not just designers, but, you know, we call affordances. And the concept of an affordance is that when we have an object or a material, that the material has a certain quality that assumes a certain capability. And so my hope in this book is to actually reframe a very old design practice of using affordance and thinking about how an object might be different for different types of people and how that object cannot afford the same type of interaction for different types of people. And so affordances as they are very, I'm getting really uh, heady. What's the word I'm looking for? Philosophical, but um, it's, I believe James Gibson originated the term and it's, I want, I really want to reframe design thinking in our entire community. And I want to take affordances and kind of turn them over and say, okay, what does this object mean to you? And then what does this object mean to somebody who is blind? What does this object mean to somebody who's in a wheelchair? Because the assumed affordance of an object is means a very different thing to a different person. These are my glasses. That's the object I was referring to for some reason, <laughs> but I hope I, I don't know. That sounds really in my, uh, 
philosophical. We also have a workbook we're putting together for certain components and things like that. So there's there's a lot that's going to be in there. Um, I'm certainly not one for brevity, as you have noticed, probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great stuff. I will be keeping an eye out for that because I'm always looking to one, not only fill my library of books, but um, two is uh, learn, you know, by osmosis. So um, I I will definitely keep my eye out for that for sure. Um, Thank you. September sounds, sounds, uh, it, it, it seems like it was just September a little while ago and it was, but, it just seemed like it was September, maybe a couple months ago, but anyways. <laughs> 10,000 years ago and a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So the last uh, question I have before I get to the final three questions is something that also piqued my curiosity is tell me about riding Japanese sports motorcycles. It's I always like including that fun fact uh, because people never expect it from me, you know? And <laughs> I remember last year I mentioned it during an all hands and the VP of sales was like, excuse me, you ride. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I, right now I don't have a motorcycle because uh, I just, I don't have the space and I don't have the time to ride, but I've been riding since I was 14. And I mean, like, you know, not, not like without my mother's permission. In fact, she was the one who taught me. And okay. so, uh, you know, when I turned 18, like the first thing I did was get a motorcycle license and, you know, uh, get a motorcycle. And so I had a Kawasaki Ninja 250. Uh, I had two of those, uh, actually over the course of however many years, I really enjoyed writing quite a lot. So I'm hoping to get back into it when, you know, when I actually have the capacity to have some fun again. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's dangerous. My mom wouldn't of course let me go out without wearing 10,000 pounds of gear and helmets, <laughs> uh, duct yeah. tape. Like I was like that kid from the Christmas story, you know, like going out, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's certainly something that, it's more beautiful than you might think mm -hmm. uh, riding up a motorcycle in the Rocky mountains in fall. I'll just say that. Just a, a sidebar. I took when uh, many drives, many cross country drives, I have gone through Colorado um, and of course, Rocky mountains also. And uh, it's a beautiful scenery out there. I'd love to get on a bike motorcycle, bicycle, whatever, and just trek through there. It's very, very uh, beautiful and scenic out there. Um, I didn't do a lot of riding back in the day. I was very reckless as a young uh, whippersnapper. <laughs> so did you ride? Uh, I, I did a little bit. I did. The, the Ninja was one of them. I didn't personally have a bike, but I knew people that had bikes, multiple bikes, and they were always willing to let me ride one. Um, ninjas were one of those, one of those bikes. I had a guy I knew that had an interceptor and I got on it and it was probably one of the, it was the, one of the higher end models. And I just remember giving it a little bit of gas. I went off the back and the bike went the other way. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, and, and 
back then, anyways, I, I'm six five and about I don't know 150 pounds soaking wet. So it was real easy for me to go this way and then the bike to go that way. So <laughs> <laughs> it's you know it's actually kind of funny now that you mention it. You kind of brought another inclusive design consideration to mind. Um, you know, I'm five one if I'm on my tippy toes and so motorcycles aren't really built for, you know, they're not really well or haven't traditionally been built for women and they haven't really definitely been built for somebody as small as me. And so every motorcycle I've had, I've had to customize it so that like shave that seat down and, uh, make it work for me. And so I don't know, there's a lot of, uh, stuff like that, that I wish were a little bit different too. Um, I don't want like a, like, I don't know, a triumph. Like I want like, you know, the, the, the Kawasaki, I want like the real, I don't know, not, not, not to hate on the triumphs though, but yeah. anyway. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'll take a, a, an Indian at any time. Riding an Indian is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I would love to get my, I would either love to ride an older, like a 20s or 30s model at, at some point, which is on my bucket list or this is ne- probably never happened, but own one. But anyways, so we, as we get down here in time, I uh, love to ask these three questions to my guests. Um, and they're, you know, really easy. You can go into detail if you'd like. One, one word answers are fine as well. The first one is, what about the web these days excites you and keeps you excited in what you do? Let me think here. What excites me most is how adaptable interfaces are becoming. And I think they were always adaptable, but it's, you know, I think it changes as a designer, you know, it changes how we should be thinking about design because, you know, suddenly our our button color contrast, which is important, suddenly somebody's, you know, out there changing everything as they wish you know, and the, you know, what we need to do is find ways to support that. And so there's something really pure to me about that in, in that we can look at really in-depth user experience and not just continually look at the UI over and over again and go, we plastered some new colors and fonts on there. It's a brand new product, you know, and, and like really look at the problems because I feel like those are some, (laughs) Over the past 10 years, sometimes it feels like we've gotten so interface focused that we've forgotten the core of our user experience practice. And sometimes, and God, I sound like an old person. I'm like, those whippersnappers only care about the UI. (laughs) And the UI is important. Don't get me wrong. But there's things like, you know, dark mode, for example. And those types of adaptable interfaces not only are important for accessibility, but they're important for broader inclusivity. And we can look at them and start to realize that if we think about adaptive interfaces, we can really create experiences that are inclusive, not just to people who have government recognized disabilities or official disabilities, but people who are neurodiverse, uh, people who are, Uh, have migraines, people who are like myself, uh, people who sometimes, you know, are more comfortable in certain situations, looking at an interface through or experiencing an interface through a screen reader, even though they may not be blind or low vision. So 
that's what really excites me right now. I know it should be like Web3 or crypto or Bitcoin or <laughs> NFTs, but it's not. And I, yeah. I, I don't know. It's not that it's not cool stuff. It's just um, there's plenty of other people to be excited about those things for me, I'm sure. I, I felt that statement when you said migraine sufferers, because I am one of those people myself. Um, I had a bout uh, last maybe last week yeah i think it was towards the tail end of last week that uh yeah i i, I get that and dark mode is my friend <laughs> let's, let's just say that so the next question is um if there were one thing you could change about the web that we know today what would that be i have a spicy answer i suppose i think the thing i've been wishing we're happening in the web right now is that people who have traditionally been less empowered to make decisions about web experiences and digital experiences be more empowered. Like I've seen enough of Zuckerberg. I've seen enough of uh, Dorsey. I've seen enough of these tech guys, you know, they've done enough. (laughs) And, uh, that's not to say, like, I, I don't know. I can't just be like, get out, you're retiring, kid. But, like, um, I wish that the web was a more equitable place and that it wasn't just sustaining existing power structures. Because right now, the way I see it, I see it as a lot of the perpetuation of existing systemic issues. And the web was supposed to be a place right? They wanted it to be a place that could be free, that, yes. not, that not free in the way that you like, like your, your, uh, like, uh, wild west may, I don't know how to describe it, but like truly equitable. Yes. That was the goal. And right now I don't see that right now. Right. I see a lot of money and a lot of power and yep. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's a hard one. I don't know how we'd fix it, but I, yeah. I'm, I have ideas. Yeah. No, totally agree. And that's not the first person who, has, you're not the first person who has said that, by the way. Oh, um, really good. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I asked that because I've had a wide range of answers and that, you know, not, I, I haven't had that many episodes of the podcast, but a few people have, have said that. So, which I totally agree with. Uh, less less people that look like me and more people that aren't you know zuckerberg dorsey the, the names that you mentioned more you know you know tim berners lease you know the web is for everybody mm-hmm. like you i don't feel and i don't see that it is I mean, we could string, we could, we could come back to access accessibility and say, okay, well, if the web is for everybody, then why can't people in this certain rural location get internet on their 3G phone? Because they can't upgrade to a better phone or the newest phone or the newest tablets or, you know, buy a $6,000 MacBook, you know? It's, it's so true. You know, it, it's like, I I don't know how to put it. There's I mentioned this on Twitter earlier today and somebody else apparently mentioned it on Twitter yesterday that I think it'd be good for the tech community to start coming together 
and start asking for these things from it. It shouldn't come down to individual companies to decide to be ethical or inclusive. It needs to be industry-wide and it needs to be something that doesn't, isn't being forced on individual contributors to do against huge power structures that are existing like those that have been perpetuated by uh, Zuckerberg, Dorsey, and other uh, systems of power and tech. So, but then, you know, I start getting into my, somebody's going to hear this one day and they'll be like, wow, she's really, you know, (laughs) talking about unions probably right now, but you know, I'm, I'm, I think things need to change. Yeah, they do. Uh, And maybe we do need unions in tech because I had a matter of fact, Speaking of unions and tech, I've had Mike Montero on and, you know, he if, about that. He certainly does. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, the last question uh, is what is your favorite part of front end development or design that you really like the most that you nerd out over? I mean, it's definitely accessibility. Uh, and I, I know that <laughs> that's the obvious answer because that's my job, <laughs> but like it's, you know, it's, to me, it's like really thinking through a problem in a completely different way than I was taught to. And I've learned so much. Like today, I, right before we joined, I was tweeting about this because I can't stop tweeting apparently, but um, (laughs) I, I was looking at a design and reviewing it. And I, there was like 10 things I noticed right off the bat that I was like, oh, this should be addressed. And I didn't used to be able to do that. And so it's just really cool to be able to start looking at at little things and starting to change things. But I just really enjoy hearing the perspectives of people who are systemically marginalized in ways that I am not. And I mean, I don't want I don't want to hear bad things, but I want to hear them so I can change things as much as I can. And accessibility yeah. is a big part of that. I don't know, you know, I don't want to have like a hero complex, um, but it'd be good to do something good with this life. And I think it feels like that's a good thing, you know. Definitely. So that is all I have for questions. And so at this point, I'd like to close out the podcast with my guests, letting the listeners know what they currently have going on and where people can find you. So I will hand the the reins over to you. Yeah. Well, if you'd like to get in touch with me or, you know, connect with me in any way, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Anna E. Cook. E as an echo. Uh, and then you can find me on LinkedIn at the same name and Medium with the same name. Uh, I am very online. Uh, I, you know, can't help it. Yeah, I live alone. We're still in a pandemic. So um, you can reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn pretty easily. Uh, my website is AnnaEcook.com if you want to look at that. Um, though I want to update that too. So one day. Um, And that's where you can find me online. Great. I will make sure everything that, uh, you know, we've referred to are in the show notes for the uh, episode. And Anna, I want to thank you very much for spending time with me today and coming on and talking accessibility, because I think that we need to talk more about it. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. 
having me, Todd. I don't think I've ever gotten to meet you in person before. So we haven't. Yeah. Well, you're welcome and thank you. Um, no, we haven't. Uh, just I think it was. It's been just Twitter. Um, this is our actual first meeting, quote unquote. But uh, no, I I have enjoyed every minute of our conversation today, and um, looking forward to that book and that conference talk coming up soon. So um, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you listeners for tuning in to the front end nerdery podcast. I'll be back next time with a new guest, new conversation about front end design development and other topics. If you would please rate this podcast on your podcast device of choice, like subscribe and watch on the front end nerdery YouTube channel links to transcripts and show notes are there. I'm Todd Libby, and this has been the Front End Nerdery Podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.